I think I think when you're writing on a page, there's no there's no chance of you sort of you know swiftly deleting anything. So you mm-hmm. you do have to think about what you put down, unless you're doing sort of scrappy notes or whatever, because you can't just hit delete and then start again. So I think when you're on a page, everything you do is a bit more considered. Maybe like you're you're more aware of what you're doing. I think. Yeah, there, there was yeah. There's, there's one point in it. I don't know if this came across where I kind of. Um... <laughs> I don't know if I tried to hide it from the text, um, but I kind of in text gave myself a set of rules, which was to not name any names. Um, so I kind of I put that in writing just so that I was kind of bound to it. <laughs> so I was aware quite early on that I was in a place where I was about to. Oh, here's how it. Um, but I was aware quite early on where I was, I was in a place where I was about to start just like writing people out. <laughs> <laughs> so it's probably not the best place to do that. Um, but yeah, it was um, it was interesting. I sort of enjoyed writing it that way. Um, yeah, but also, I mean, I, I do think there's a I'm trying to pull it back to galleries, but there's, there's a, there, there is a resonance to that in galleries as well. With um, but I think hi Harry, you're right. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's, there's a resonance to that sort of handwriting in galleries and the, and the difference between handwriting and typewriting. I think. You, you know, in in terms of local culture, where there's been, you know, Laura Robertson from Double Negative is the writer in residence at Open Eye, and her recent project was very much about handwritten notes from submissions from the public and how they informed the wall work. Mm-hmm. Um, so, kind of, there were, there were there were connections between the handwritten text, which was I, I think up in vinyl. Um, and the wall text, which was also in vinyl, but equally how they related to, to the images that were taken from archives. Um, and there's been spaces in more traditional exhibitions where that's happened as well. Um, I can't remember. I can't, it was a really fab exhibition, but I can't remember whose exhibition it was, but it was at Tate Liverpool about five years ago, and that all of the wall text in that exhibition was handwritten as well. Um, and it, it does add something. It does... Anyway, sorry, that's just me. Continue, Harry. For context, I'm still just talking about myself, and, and, <laughs> and so, um, yeah. Has anyone got any thoughts on galleries, and not just my handwriting? I mean, I've I've got like a a bit of a thought that just comes off the back of what you you've just been saying about um, you know, the the value of the handwritten, and I suppose that for a gallery that's that presents a problem because you you've got to archive that it's it's this physical existing um thing very often um so i find that really interesting and particularly because a lot of my phd research is going through letters between artists um etc and that all of these archives exist um and it's quite nice that someone is thinking about that in a contemporary setting and how how we value the the sort of written words as a yeah. physical object. Matt, how what's their approach to archive and that? If you know, it it varies um, actually. So I think because of um, coronavirus at the moment, I'm obviously receiving digitised physical objects, which is another weird thing in itself. But the fact that 
archives have to have these things in rows and rows of boxes and every bit of paper is more space mm-hmm. um, and that a lot of these archives have both a digital archive and a physical archive which is quite interesting um, but it, yeah it, it just makes me wonder how physical objects are valued now yeah I am um... I agree. I remember early doors of the course, I was looking at the relationship between the value of tangible objects and or in a sentimental context, this obsession with something you can hold and touch and interact with and and letter writing and stuff like that. And I sent a message to Joe before about about letter writing, about sending cards and messages and stuff. And I think it's, I know I've started doing it during the lockdown with a friend that lives in London. Um, as a, It's a very sentimental practice because I can message her instantly, quite easily. And when I send her a letter, I write it by hand, even though, you know, I could type it up. And it's strange because the demographic that I'm from, that was never part of our exchange. It was pr- it's pretty much been instant messaging all my life. I don't think I've ever sent... I sent sent postcards and that's in the same vein. Um, But this thing about wanting something tangible is quite interesting. Like, what is our infatuation with the physical? Why, when there's digital publications, do we still want to order a printer's copy and things like that? And accrue and things that become extensions of our identity because of the fact that we curate and display them in in our personal spaces. What is the obsession with ordering books that I've I've still not read and probably not going, you know, to have the object and um, very guilty of that yeah yep. <laughs> um, definitely um, i think that um it, it's it's very interesting to me this thing of like you say so how are artists communicating at the moment yes they are they're emailing they're texting they're on messenger apps um you know my phd is based around the late 50s early 60s all of that material is physical because it had to be so is there is there like an art historical duty to make this digital stuff physical? Yeah, are, like, we, are we losing something? Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's an art historical duty. Maybe I think the I think the main duty of making it, making all the digital stuff physical is accessibility. I, I just yeah. there is the one thing that is always forgotten in accessibility conversations is is, is age um, and, and access to, to online resources. And it's not an inability to use online resources. It's a lack of familiarity, familiarity, familiarity yeah. you know, with, with, um, with the spaces that are sharing that information. Um, physical resources and physical spaces are often the only source of information for people. Um, and that's not necessarily just an age thing, but that's any, anyone who's got poor broadband, anyone who's new to an area, anyone who moves to a city um, isn't familiar with that city's specific outlets, but they'll go to a pub and they'll pick up a free paper um, or they'll go to a gallery because it's on a it's on an information sheet in a tourist office and that can be their access to information. Um, yeah. Right now, there are restrictions on how that physical space works, but there does always, I think, always need to remain a physical point of information, even for online resources. Yeah, I remember going to the workshop led by Bella Milroy about this in the soft sanctuary, Mm. um, human libraries. And it was 
the people who joined the Zoom call, it was dead interesting because she wanted to do these things in a library. And in the library, there's already a community there who rely heavily on the fact that it's a physical space and you've got all the physical objects there to use. Yeah. The library at my uni is always dead busy. Like, the, obviously, people seeking out things other than just going online. And like you said, it, it's probably an accessibility thing, especially for those. Like, it's like, oh, you know, you know, people buy a Kindle. Like, I'm not a Kindle person. And that's probably just a preference as opposed to an accessibility issue. But it's just on the screen to stare at, whereas a book, it's different. And the people that joined the Zoom call were of all different walks of life, far more cross-sectional than other things I've seen. And these were people that were relying on the library as, as a physical access point. And um, it's just like a literacy with interfaces. Like, I still get my mum and dad calling me going, I'll just get to that page. And I think it's self-explanatory because I, I know how digital interfaces are. I know that three lines at the top means menu. But for those that don't, and it could be an age thing, but maybe it's it transcends that as well. Um, and so given a physical outlet, yeah, I don't really know what my point is here, but just how many communities are built around physical access points that are just then perhaps getting overlooked when we when things only become become online only. If things are like tangible, it sort of makes it more easily digestible. Because like you were saying where you'd rather read like an actual book than off a Kindle. It sort of goes back to when we were talking about Patrick's handwriting before and how it was sort of you can't just like delete it and it's all it's permanently there. Mm-hmm. I think it's the same like when you go to galleries and stuff and like they'll give you like handouts and that but they'll have the content being like oh but otherwise you can check her out on the website if they just give me the website thing I will not go and look at it because mm-hmm. it's like it, it's always gonna be there like I can do it when I go home I can do yeah. it the next day but if you've got the piece of paper there in front of you with all the information on you're like okay I'll read this now like it's probably going to be important to me and I think like having um like tangible information makes it a bit more direct yeah let's go with that yeah like when they print press releases i'm all about that like pick it up because i'm not the type of person who sits in a gallery for hours i hate all that i just go in consume what i want and fuck off like and what i'll do is when i get home is i'll sit with the press release then it's on my time and there's been a few galleries now where it's all like scan the QR code to get the information. And as good as that is, like, and they're really trying to push the boundary of of how we can access information and especially maybe printing resources and it being a waste or whatever. But I just think like, imagine if you didn't have a smartphone, like there's people still out there without that. We can't just assume that that is a part of people's everyday life. And there's yeah. quite a lot of us that actually choose not to use our smartphones or don't take them out or delete certain things so that we distance ourselves from that reliance. And it's like, why should this unlockable content be through a smartphone? Unless it's part of the work, unless it's about digital communication accessibility why would you have the press release or you know the taglines of the work on a qr code it just you still have to you know letter set the qr code onto something so why didn't you just do the writing as well and balancing that space and physical resources and printing and waste of paper with needing to keep things accessible to to people and maybe yeah i don't know i don't know how the two work in in the, the, well, there's always a challenge of um, for, for anything that ends up in print um, of paper and 
how sustainable that is and when that's going to end. Um, you know, there will, there will come a time where it is no longer appropriate to print. Um, but I think that time, that's a long way off. And that's when online has become far more accessible and far more readily available to everybody and part of everyone's daily life in the way that they interact. Um, I think in, in China, it's actually probably closer to where we're going to be in terms of print in the future, where, you know, you, you are so used to having your own personal QR codes um, and accessing things through that, paying through that, reading newspapers through that, paying for newspapers you read via your personal QR code. From as you know, you go into a news agent, you have a physical interaction, but your QR code works as a physical object in that sense. So, it, I think that will work one day. But you know, given that we're not a forced communist society like China, um, I think it will take us longer to get there. <laughs> um, so it's kind of it. It's a lot. Yeah, we're a long way off that. I think in for most of the world, but one day, all printed resources will be completely useless but for now i think the good outweighs the bad just see i i wonder if printed resources will be useless and i i suppose my concern with the digital world is yeah. how we build a secure legacy so say a phd researcher in 50 years time wants to um, let's, for argument's sake, they want they want to research the blue coat, but the blue coat have digitised everything. It only takes like the slip of a button to delete stuff, um, and at least you know physical paper yeah. is sat on a shelf, <laughs> and it's always there unless there's some kind of disaster. Um, so I, I wonder, you know, if if in fifty years' time a PhD student is trying to research artists now, and they are working by digital means, like what that experience would be like and how they access that information yeah there's there's definitely a challenge of security um definitely but equally that exists for printed resources you know if you know if, if you have if you have a fire if you're burgled if people want your passwords they, they can go through things that you know even the, the fact the advice when um, gdpr came out for printed information was that you put it in a filing cabinet with a lock as though that's the same as having a password protective thing online. It's not um, because a filing cabinet's lock can be broken with a Stanley knife. Like they're not, um, not that I'm implicating myself and ever having broken into a filing cabinet, but um, <laughs> you know, the, you know, the, the, the security doesn't work the same way. And I, I don't know if they're necessarily comparable. I think, I think there, there is, a, there is definitely a usefulness in having printed resources as archive but is, is, is that the same as having printed resources that are shared with everybody that are, I don't know, you know, in, I, I don't even know if this will be in our lifetime, but saying, I don't know, however many years time, that if, if there becomes a point where it is odd to have a printed book, like, is that something that is, does that feel wrong to you? <laughs> the interesting thing there is that you use the word archive. So like, Matt, you're working with archive material and archive versus printing are two different things. So if you think about officers that just print for the sake of it, I mean, if anyone's going to come under fire about horrific waste of paper, I think galleries and, and artists probably be lower on the list than the standard office where it's one of them, this could have been an email type of thing. 
archive and the only way we've ever done it up until this point has been in archive and history and culture has been through printed materials and metamorphosis from our history being in physical print and and the way it's going is there always going to be a reliance on on physical materials it's like the backup of the backup of the backup i don't even think i've got my ba dissertation digitally I don't even think I've got it physically, but if it if it was it'd be physical, I don't know where the other thing's gone. So it's like just to be sure, print it, save it, upload it to the cloud, put it on a pen drive, but the physical still acts as that cushy, cushy like backup file. And I think with the filing cabinet with the lock and the password protected, you say they're not comparable or that it can be broken in with a Stanley knife, but that file and cabinet exists in one location in one place in the world, whereas digital archive exists anywhere that you can access it on online. I mean, I'm by no man, by no means like a hacker man, I wouldn't know how to get into a password protected website, but somebody out there does. And and that could be from any point yeah. place in the world, whereas the filing cabinet is only in that one place. Mm. So protection, I, I wonder if they are more comparable, if there's one that's better than the other. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm not talking people's personal details. I'm talking like drafts of dissertation here so it's not like anyone's really that bothered about getting on that but yeah, yeah archiving and history and, and and all that kind of thing I feel like the physical still be important because we've never done it any other way we're only now doing all the other things digitally backing up and all that so that's going to be a lot longer to move to shift to the digital than say gallery exhibitions or or research papers yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think you've, you've, I think the example of your dissertation probably made my hypocrisy tangible for me, um, <laughs> because I know for a fact I've got nine copies of my dissertation in different formats printed, and not a single <laughs> digital copy. So, um, it, yeah. Um, yeah. You must have believed in it. You must have been confident in it to have nine copies, like... <laughs> I was just, I was just cocky. I think um, no, I didn't confidently believed in it. Um, I just yeah <laughs> thought it was worth the paper. I don't know why? <laughs> no, that's cool. We had to have two copies for my uni at BA. Don't know yeah. why. And I was already grumbling over the fact that it cost me however much to print and get bound. And, all <laughs> like that. and I remember my mate had his hardback bound leather cover because she just wanted it to look dead bougie like god only knows she hasn't used that since but like <laughs> I was like it was an audacity that there had to be two copies and a digital copy and now I could not tell you where that is and it doesn't matter because it was crap anyway but like you know, it would have been interesting just for a little flick through but no I don't have it anymore yeah yeah anyway, um, kind of irrelevant <laughs> I think you know just to kind of try and somehow round that back to galleries and <laughs> um, I don't know how to do that. Is there a way of doing that? Is there a neat way? It doesn't matter. It's not neat anymore. I've rambled. Um, I mean, we could, we could talk about the way that galleries give us information. That seems relevant to this. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think probably that works. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm just, I'm looking at you, Matt. You, you said it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we, we've talked about the physical, we've talked about the digital, and this is a very real thing that galleries are grappling with at the moment. And um, as Harriet said earlier, you know, QR codes, 
the lot, the printed booklet. Um, you know, every time you go in the tape, you're given a little booklet. Um, and I suppose that the world that we live in now, um, that sort of information is given to us very, very differently. Um, and in some respects, I mean, what we're doing now is a form of interpretation, but the subject is is, is wider. Um, so what is my question here? Um, <laughs> you're going to have to help me out now, Patrick, form this in something. Well, I, I think if, if you start to look at the difference in how you can communicate information from the point of view of the gallery to an audience, um, I think probably one example that's been on my mind just since doing that handwritten thing with um, Jade Montserrat, who's obviously been become fairly infamous as an artist for all the wrong reasons this year. Um, but the hair exhibition at Bluecoats, I think probably two years ago now, but it feels like maybe last year, but I think it was probably 2019. Um, but Rooted did a what was called as an event, I think it was called Glossary Review, um, because a massive portion of that work was Jade's definitions of, of words surrounding her experience. Um, and it was presented as a library that could be used, sat in, read. You could spend time with that space really physically. Um, what I liked about that exhibition was that there was very little text other than the text that was part of the exhibition. You know, there, was, there wasn't context given there wasn't because it wasn't necessary you know the the, the context was the work itself but then when mm -hmm. Rooted came in it was a really interesting interpretation from an artist's perspective as opposed to a gallery's perspective um, and I guess with Rooted it was an artist and an audience perspective and because of that it you know it ended up as a physical workshop where people could attend people could take part in and it was about reviewing those those glossary the, the glossary terms that were part of the exhibition um if you've not if you've not seen it i'll try and find a link and email it over later but it was a really good exhibition oh yeah i found it one sec yeah thank you um sorry um do you yeah do you think that the information given out by galleries is what people want? It differs. It differs based on the gallery, you know. Um, like I, one of probably one, one of my favourite galleries that's, that's ever existed in, in Liverpool was a, a small view. It was it was absolutely minuscule, but it was in the old Gostin space. Um, but they were terrible at that. You know, the, the, the information they gave you with their exhibitions was virtually non-existent. Um, and you were kind of expected to know the artists almost. Like it was, and it, it, it's favourite because as an experience, it was a wonderful place to go and be as an artist or to, or to be as someone who was part of the art world. But as an audience, and that's what, I, again, I don't know if any of us are really necessarily the right person to, to, to answer that because as an artist... I like delving. I like finding out more about the background to the work as an audience member. If I'm completely detached, so if you put yourself in the shoes of kind of being in a tourist city somewhere where you're unfamiliar um, and imagine taking yourself out of the arts, so maybe in a museum setting or a heritage setting, um, you know, what, what, what is the useful information in that setting? Like if you go to the Yorkshire, Tra the, the Yorkshire Transport Museum, um, the information... And, and, and not comparing old buses to art, but the information that you get. I'm just, I'm just trying to think of, you know, spaces that are similar oh, to yeah. physically. Um, 
what's the useful information in that setting to a, to a non-attached audience member? I was interested in what Elizabeth had to say about, like, you know, the press release versus the QR code or the website that you go home. You, as artists, if we're into the work, we'll go home and look at that. Yeah. Um, but as audience... And it comes back to that, like, Museums 3.0 and all this, like, oh, projecting what the audience wants and, oh, trying to fulfil that to the T. And uh, none of us maybe are equipped because we've crossed that threshold to know exactly what that is. Um, And like you said, like, those spaces that just expect you to know the artist, expect you to know what type of work this is, expect you to know the context and how it functions, which audience members don't necessarily know that. They're not going to go home and look the artist up, are they? So the very basic, you obviously give the name and the year, but what other information, like like you said, the, the transport museums, it's like overloads of information, it's boring information, although for transport enthusiasts, it's probably not. It's not boring information. <laughs> Nothing about the transport museum <laughs> is boring. Um, I mean, I've not been to the specific one that you're talking about, so maybe I'm missing out. There, there is a massive physical round turntable with a train on, just physically, it's wonderful to see. <laughs> Um, you can stand on it while the train turns and connects the different carriages. What what this is about is about a difference between information and interpretation. And I think that, you know, us as a group here, we probably have the tools to confidently go into a gallery and to, you know, to to make our own decisions. Um, And that's what interpretation is meant to do. It's, uh, I always say, um, the interpretation, if you imagine a climbing wall that has different handholds, interpretation is about getting you to the other side of that climbing wall, but through your own, through your own route. Mm-hmm. So it's just giving you enough to inform you, uh, to give you the excuse to make your own decisions about what's, what's before you, um, rather than that information overload thing. Because, you know, your average person walking in, like average is completely the wrong word, but you get what I mean, walking in off the street, picking up a piece of paper, which is absolutely laden with information about art movements, where the artist was, etc. It's of no interest to them. What they want to know is how to engage with what is what is in front of them. This has just reminded me, like, last year... I was on holiday in Spain with my mum. We went, this is, this is relevant, right? And um, <laughs> we went to this gallery and like the piece of work was like this big massive table like set out in a spiral. And it was based on some sort of like mathematic equation. And I only knew that because I remember being taught in school. And you know, when something's just there in the back of your mind and I was like, right, this is what this is. But the whole sort of like hour or so we was in there, my mum was just walking around being like, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't want to be here. And was like complaining the whole entire time. But the music, like the gallery didn't actually give you any sort of information. They only gave you like a little placard with the name on and stuff. And it's like, how do you expect people to interact with and understand the work when you're not making it sort of available to be understood if you're not sort of in the frame of mind where you know what's going on? That metaphor about the rock climbing is so good. Like, mm-hmm. And if we think yeah. about, we're like, you know, I don't know, quite skilled rock climbers, so we're going to go for, like, the little tiny ones and try and challenge ourselves. And if we think about the audience's 
inexperienced rock climbers and they need the bigger ones, the more obvious ones. If we think of those as like nuggets of information, A, what do they look like or sound like? And B, why would they want to climb the wall anyway? And this idea of interpretation where we're quite, as artists, maybe you're more equipped our brains just switch around and go right how do we interpret this what does it look like what does it remind us of like you said Elizabeth like like a Fibonacci type sequence mm-hmm. from school and you saying about interpretation and engagement and the confidence to do that we're confident in doing that we can engage with that and we can enjoy it through interpretation whereas the audience who are not encouraged to do that aren't going to do it in the first place aren't even going to bother climbing the wall and in like the walker i think there's like a kids section and there's like little like pointers being like can you think why henry the eighth was painted like this is it because like they wanted to make him look rich and like or, or like when you did history at school they might have said you know they were painted this way because they wanted to give off this vibe and it's those little prompts and it's stupid because obviously that's a kids section and to give that same thing to an adult audience would be kind of condescending but that like those pointers those prompts that they often give for a a younger audience for children are the type of signposts that maybe some people do need to interact with work of a more conceptual or abstract type of thing if it's not immediately accessible in that oh this is a watercolor painting of a river like sound i get it if it's anything that's you know not something that they get then do they need those signposts? And that would surely that would come in the form of the information given at the gallery. And like I said, I'm not suggesting that, you know, we give colour and books out and stuff like that and go, you know, whatever. But how do we give them those big nuggets of information? How do we give them that confidence yeah. and that engagement? And I, I think you're totally right. And I think that the the parallel that you've drawn there with what the kids section does and what good interpretation for adults needs to be um, is, you know, is a big thing. I mean, that's what makes good interpretation is allowing allowing those handholds that I spoke about earlier, but doing that in a way that isn't dumbing down, but it is just leading you through what you what you what you are seeing. Um, out of interest, Elizabeth, was that gallery like a private gallery or was it a public public? No, gallery? it was a public like in yeah. the middle of a park. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, I'm, I'm always quite interested in how, say, a commercial gallery's language and approach to this sort of thing is very different to a public art gallery. And it goes back to that thing we were talking about a couple of weeks ago of the, the buzzer at the door, in that what you get in commercial art galleries is a press release, and it, it doesn't give much away. Um, you know, commercial galleries will assume a knowledge um, pretty much all the time and it is part of that um you know they're in there to buy work they want to feel exclusive oh i got this so you know i can buy this and own it um that sort of thing and how public art galleries do that very differently because they they have to be for all just just to ask on that the what's the difference in value then between the way that commercial so let's say Commercial art galleries in, in Merseyside that spring to mind, so Dot Art and Cork. Um, when they have an exhibition, it is typically some, similar to the press release that's on the wall. They're, they'll give a little bit of information about the artist um, and a bit of information about the, the themes behind the work. Whereas you go to Tate or you go to Blue Coat, 
what you'll get is a lot of information about the background of that artist, um, especially when that artist's a historical figure. So let's say, you know, the Keith Haring exhibition, um, you know, the major one of a couple of years ago. Um, that exhibition led you through Keith Haring's life um, in a kind of chronological order against pop culture at the time. So you could kind of understand and relate to it. Um, similarly, like um, there was an exhibition that I thought was really good at this at the Walker about pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood that brought it back into talking about, you know, even, you know, talking into the BBC drama about pre-Raphaelites with Aidan Turner and kind of using those pop culture references to keep people engaged. Um, but there is a, I don't know, I feel like there's a difference in what's possible a commercial gallery selling a private work of an artist who isn't a, an historical figure or isn't doesn't have international significance in that same way um, there's a bigger there's potentially a bigger challenge for those smaller commercial spaces to actually present that information because there is essentially less information um, so what do you need as an audience in in, in that case when you say about go, go on Harry oh, just about pop culture reference um, like it's like how people use things like memes it's immediately relevant we've seen it before and it's, it makes it makes it accessible and with the Keith Haring like if they show what was going on at the time to give it that context people are immediately able to draw the parallels between them it's the same way like my mum's still obsessed with Andy Warhol and Roy Lichtenstein are able to see those figurative elements from pop culture and, and that's how they use it as, as a point of access. Um, and does that element of pop culture or popular media kind of, is that a really good place to start instead of to start with it's part of this historical art movement or it's, or it's, part of this thing if, if they align themselves with popular culture of which they know and they're aware of if they use a, a name that's in the media that people already automatically know the context of the work then you know Trump Kardashians whoever Boris Johnson and they just go right and know the tone of this work and know what it's getting at because you've given me that as a way in even though the work itself is absent it, it, there's no there's not that element of it or is that like dumbing people down by going, oh, you have to, I have to relate it to this thing you've seen on the telly for you to get this work? I don't know, it's kind of... I don't know. Yeah, I, I, think, I think the short answer is probably yeah. Um, because really, you know, what I think, you know, the example I gave of the Walker, while I think it is a good example of, of engaging people in text because it does give those pop culture references, they're in no way relevant to the work. You know, Aidan Turner has nothing to do with the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. Um, but he played one of them in a TV series once, but he's mentioned in that. And it's engaging for people to read, but it's got absolutely no relevance to the work. Um, so it's kind of, I don't know, it is really challenging, but then it, I guess the, the deeper question is who are the galleries for? Are they for the audiences or are they for the artists? Um, you know, because a gallery is there to present the work of artists. They are a middleman. Um, so are they... Are they there to present the work of an artist as the artist wants it to be presented? Or are they to present it to the audience as the audience needs the information? It's probably um, linked to a wider assumption of how the general public um, 
uh, engage with with art as well. So if you watch if you watch any episode of Northwest tonight, <laughs> what what are the exhibitions that they are going to cover? So you know the the big light show thing that happened in Liverpool, whatever it was called, that got serious coverage. But would the exhibition on oh I don't know um, oh, let's uh, I can't think of an example. A contemporary artist, say at Blue Coat, would that get any coverage? Uh, it has in the past, once or twice. Um, I think just to put into, I, I don't know how useful Northwest Tonight is because of how impossible it's ever going to be to talk about serious art on Northwest Tonight. Given that yesterday they did their fourth report since January on the fact that Robbie Savage is funding grassroots football. Um, like, <laughs> that's four since January. Five. That's <laughs> for Robbie Savage, an ex-footballer supporting a grassroots team I've never heard of. That's not news. It's a repeat of old news if it was news in the first place. But they still can't talk about, you know, updates from Light Night, the fact that they've got crowdfunders. They can't talk about Blackfest's announcement. They can't talk, you know, there's so much news coming out in my inbox at Art at Liverpool that is interesting and relevant to the people of Liverpool, and it is never mentioned. Is it relevant to anybody else? Would people rather hear about Robbie Savage? I mean... Apparently, but I think <laughs> apparently they would. But I, I think there is a, there is a massive relevance to any exhibition that opens at fact to kids that to kids that need inspiring to go into science subjects. There is a massive relevance historically of anything that happens at Blue Coat just because of the historical context of the building beyond what art happens in it. You know, it um, anything that happens at the Walker again is a really useful historical context because contemporary art is happening in one of the oldest art spaces in the UK. And the, there is an interest from the public in those stories. Um, yeah, I, 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 use, I use the example tonight quite sort of flippantly, but... Um, <laughs> so you, you weren't specifically trying to provoke my bitterness. <laughs> no, but... I think it it does link link into this wider perception of what of what the the wider public actually wants. It it just sets the ambition bar really bloody low. If all you've got to do is you know make a nice light show and all you can say about it is oh yeah that that that's a nice butterfly, you know. Um, <laughs> and I don't I don't think that's me being snobby. I think it's a, it's like a, an issue. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> a lot of my family with kids loved that, but it was because the kids liked it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a bit stupid, really, because one of the, my cousins, who's a little, little girl, is quite artsy, and like they're constantly going, "Oh, you know, your big cousin's an artist," and I'm like, "Please, just stop saying that. Like, it's going to put her off doing it." And it's like you take it to these shows, the light show, and it's like. She might, they may or may not be saying, you know, you you could do this. This is art as well, you know. But what's the likelihood that she is going to do it? And what's the likelihood that the framework is going to be there for her to make that type of art? And it's like, is is that the best way to get kids involved in art? I mean, I think that was really good for kids, mm -hmm. which really dumbs it down, which is, it sounds like I'm slagging it off. But it was really good for kids. It got loads of people with children out and seeing it and taking photos and stuff. Hmm. Or maybe it was just date night. I don't know. Like there were what there were what there were pieces in that that were I think that were really legitimate, really interesting works of art. 
and they were just kind of filtered under a press release that wasn't. Um, so I, you know, but there, there were interesting works of art in that in River of Light. Um, they were just kind of hidden amongst everything else. But um, I don't know. It's uh, yeah. <laughs> it's just it. It's always really easy to talk about how simple to put those big public facing shows down as as a kind of blanket challenge to to more serious art and i don't i don't know if they necessarily are because i think it i think there's a danger of belittling certain art forms as well in that um you know that there are there are really serious contemporary artists that work in led and neon um yeah and i think i think that my my point was trying to be about um you know not not really not really the content of what is down there um but about the yeah that that benchmark that it sets the institutions are sitting there going oh well you know that's got an hour hours worth of coverage there this must be what the public like we would do something like this to at least get people through the door Mm. rather than presenting something that can challenge and be properly framed through interpretive methods yeah do you think yeah. that's what elevates the work? The interpretation. Yeah. It, yeah. So when we're talking about serious pieces of work, good pieces of work in that river of light versus the butterfly, is that what elevates it from not serious to serious? The ambiguity of interpretation, which is the very thing that might stop audiences go into the smaller shows i think i mean it's it's such a complex issue but i think that must surely play into it somehow yeah i agree because you know as as someone who was sort of walking around albert dock the weekend that the, these things are being put up um you know as far as i could see there was no information about it as, as such the, these were just things sat in isolation um, and it was quite interesting walking around and hearing people's conversations about it. Mm-hmm. Oh, have you have you seen the palm tree? Oh, it's really great. <laughs> that, that's where it stops. <laughs> I mean, I wish someone was saying that about my work. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it was great. Ends of conversation. Like I'm trying, I'm trying not to be a snob because it's that, that's not my intention, and I'm aware that it's it's probably sounding that way. But uh, I think there is a real think, issue. The other, the other thing is, it's quite the the thing with River of Light, and it is it's really easy, I think, to to use something like River of Light, which is a public arts project, um, in the in the wider sense of that. Um, because it's there, it, it's there as a kind of punching bag for public council-produced artwork, and that's and that, you know it's good that the council produces artwork. It's good that Culture Liverpool considers visual art part of culture when it when a lot of you know like the Department for Culture in the government barely considers it at all. Um, so it's you know at least Culture Liverpool considers it as part of that. So it, there, there are there are good connotations of it. Um, I think what it's an example of, and to kind of get away from just bashing that one single event, um, 
for better or worse, it it's that thing of <laughs> the top level of production, whether that is a board member or a director, giving tasks to curators who give tasks to artists. And it's a kind of brief on brief on brief on brief. And it's not necessarily about the artist creating work that's supported by a curator, developed by a producer and created in conversation. So I do, I do think legitimately there's an argument to say that there is less value in that kind of work because it's not create, there's work that's created in isolation that has more value because the artists had time to consider what they're doing and mm. created in that same process where it's supportive where the artist has been helped to consider what they're doing. But I think there are, there are programs like that where it's just about shipping work in, plonking it in a space, and that is marketed in a way that gets bums in seats. And, yeah, I, th I think that generally is probably one of the more typical problems of, of all gallery practices. Something came to mind then about the light show and this kind of thing of, did you see that? Yeah, that was great. End of conversation. Is like Sefton Park has a firework display every year. I don't know, probably didn't last year, but and the council's paying for them fireworks, I assume. And everyone goes, the fireworks happen, and you go, did you see that firework at the end? Yeah, it was great. And that's the end of conversation. Do we see firework shows as a part of culture? Hard to say. But the funding has it. They get culture funding. But we wouldn't say it was art where firework shows is money that again, not bitter, but money that could go to artists. Yeah, um, I agree. It's from the and same pot, you know. I agree. And that kind of start and end of conversation, it doesn't go to anything more, does it really enrich our culture? It does that in that it gets people out and in the park and stuff, but I, th I think it I think this is where what do we mean by culture? Because I do, I do think, I, I, although I, I hate firework shows, I think they're really bad for anyone with PTSD. They're awful for any, anyone who has animals knows how bad they are. They're just, you know, I think they're horrible things. But <laughs> that, of that thing in Sefton Park is so much a part of anyone who grew up in Liverpool's experience. You know, it, and it's not so much anymore because they actually filter it out. So you're kind of along the river now. Um, and they've tried to plan more about where people are. But when you, when we were little, for, for those of us that did grow up in Liverpool, that absolute cramming together of human bodies in Sefton Park, <laughs> what, like a 15-minute display of fireworks that probably yeah. cost half a million quid? And <laughs> trying not to burn the person next to you, dropping drinks <laughs> on people, you come home freezing. <laughs> Everyone has that shared experience. So that... I think is valuable as part of a local culture and a local identity, but I, but it's not it's not necessarily valuable as art. It's interesting that you say about you know people with animals, people with PTSD. I would not care if we never had another fireworks show in this city. I honestly wouldn't be asked. Like I know that's me thinking for myself. And when you were describing that thing of being in Sefton Park, that was a good memory from when I was a child who we went with. But the fireworks, this memory building, there was such a little part. It was just the excuse that brought us together. The fireworks were neither here nor there. And this projection or assumption of what the people want, or they want a firework display, well, no, those who suffer from PTSD don't. Those with animals don't. You know what? Those people who can't get a parking space by Sefton Park probably don't either. So we assume that that's what the people want but maybe it's not and 
Yeah. Okay, would they want it if they know how much money it costs to put it on, or would they rather have a say in what that money could be put towards? So that same projection and assumption of what people want, yeah. And I do get what you're saying about the experience and the the culture that it created, but it could be that without being fireworks. Like I said, the memory oh, yeah. that cling on to is. I couldn't tell you what the fireworks were. It was just like a cat, like a wheel and shit, like all them things. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, but I think it could equally. I think what you know, something something like Africa Oye as a festival, safe space, Sefton Park, bodies packed together, enjoying that collective experience. That's obviously far more valuable. Yeah, it has artistic merit. Um, so it's you know the, there are events that I think will sl- hopefully slowly filter out fireworks because you know one day. Like everything else, fireworks will stop being produced because people will realise how awful they are. Um, but, you know, <laughs> people will still want fireworks. Like, there were fireworks going off on the park opposite yesterday. Why? In the day. <laughs> like, in the middle of the day. <laughs> no one can see them. <laughs> it was, it's just heightened. That, that's heightened. That's, um, there's, no, there's no legitimate excuse for it. It's just... We, we didn't really, yeah, we just, we didn't bank on it when we moved to Hyatt. I like Hyatt, but there's a lot of daytime fireworks for some reason <laughs> all year. Um, anyway, yeah, so pe- people like fireworks. Um, people like making things go bang, and that is mm-hmm. nature. Um, I think it's the same reason people like boxing. It's the same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Sorry, I am, I am genuinely being a snob now. I apologise for that. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. Um, where were we before I started being snobby? Um, Sorry, I just keep coming up with these, like, irrelevant parallels between really crap day-to-day things and trying to talk eloquently about these massive issues. It's the only way I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think that, I think you're, the the day to day is part of how you draw those parallels in gallery spaces. Um, it's why you know it's originally why sort of why I brought up that you know that pop culture stuff in parallel with Keith Haring or with the Pre-Raphaelites at the Walker. It's the the this day-to-day experience, and art needs to be a part of that. You know, it's if art exists in a vacuum, there is kind of no purpose or value to it anyway it, it needs to be part of a wider experience it needs to comment on wider experience um i mean yeah. it's it's very interesting what what you're saying patrick about uh you know the the river of light thing and the you know yusefton park fireworks coming out of the same pot and maybe it's this assumption that we need to have some kind of spectacle some kind of mass spectacle yeah and that is the only way to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I... Any kind of like novelty novelty event that's just made to sort of get people together and be like, oh, you see what they've done over here, when it doesn't sort of mean anything. Like, it's just fireworks, isn't it? But people will still go, but it's like, you could do it any time of the year, but then, like, that one night it's on, like, oh, we need to go, like, this feels very important to us. Is that, is, that, is that same criticism not valid of art in a lot of ways? You know, it's, you know, they're just doing it, you know, Independence Biennial, Liverpool Biennial, Threshold Festival, fe- festivals, galleries, exhibitions that bring artists together because 
artists need work. Like, I'm just devil's advocate wise, you know, everything that we criticize typical culture and river of light or fireworks, people that aren't interested in art, is that not, is that not the same problem for them? That, you know, that money that was spent on art could have been spent on more fireworks. Um, <laughs> in, I, I don't know, just to kind of pointlessly annoy myself later when I listen to this back, I guess. Um, I mean, at least at the festivals, it changes. There's the framework, but yeah. the actual content changes. The fireworks are the same every year <laughs> and if they're not yeah. it's like the, the green instead of yellow like it's, it's to the point where you wouldn't even notice whereas Africa oh yeah the, the independence biennial all these other frameworks have changing outputs so if it's not your cup of tea this year it might be next year yeah and I suppose yeah, and like you'll that... still go back and check it out, but if you don't like the fireworks, you're not going to go back and watch the same fireworks the year after. It's the show. I don't know because if you don't really, do, if you went to an art festival and thought, you know, I'm going to challenge myself, let's go, and go, God, this was a waste of my time. I'm never doing this again. Like, but then at least with the biennial, they're putting enough artists out there that there might be something for everyone. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, and it's it ties to i mean things like liverpool biennial independence biennial it's all setting up ways for which to to question all of this but you know the big spectacle mass spectacle stuff there is an end point where it cannot be questioned anymore i mean it's just <laughs> it happens it goes away but at least this is this is opening up these these conversations you know yeah and um, that's that's before we even start talking about the giants uh, oh. and stuff like that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, that question and the people involved talking about accessibility, talking about racism, talking about underrepresentation. There's more little ways in for the audience because they might think, "Oh, never thought of that." Or, "Oh, that applies to me." Um. And the constant challenge, but like you said, at the end, there's one thing: the questions stop, and that's that. And I suppose that'll be where festivals and galleries and exhibitions should look to broaden their feedback, and so that you can get the information you need to know what the audience wants, so that in the future they can vary what they offer. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you know. Variety is definitely important. Like you know, the the Giants point. I, I like. I, I really like the Giants. I thought <laughs> it was fantastic. But I like them until the day the artists turn round, just before the the opening of the third one, and said, "I'm not doing this anymore. It's the same thing over and over again. They just pay me." Um, like if, if the artist doesn't see the value in what he's doing. Mm. Why should why should we? So it's kind of, and that, that that's that spectacle thing, isn't it? You know, you you do things for public consumption, and artists make massive amounts of money for it, and it's kind of good that they do. It's this, you know, isn't it good that we can have celebrity artists that earn massive amounts of money in the same way that Dwayne Johnson earns the same massive amount of money for doing Jumanji three? Like it's. I don't know if that's a movie. Yeah, Jumanji Two was actually quite good. But, um, you know, um, yeah, 
um, but yeah, I, I think that there, there is still a sort of value in that, sort of. <laughs> but it is, but it, it's with that pinch of salt that it is. It's just that the consumption, but it is about repetition and it's about re- recreation and it's about going, I want that artist to do that in this gallery because it was fab. Um, and a, a lot of that, and this, is, this, isn't a, this isn't a gallery thing, this is a biennial thing. Um, and it's not a criticism of Liverpool biennials specifically, it's of all biennials um, of, of the internationals um, on that circuit. A lot of artists that are part of any biennial have shown that exact same work at a different biennial before. Mm. Unique commissions, you know, they are recreations of work that has been made for a biennial that is then showed at another biennial due to the network of biennials, that work is then shown again and again and again. So, you know, they're never, their aim isn't local artists. You know, their aim is to show what they deem to be the best of international art in a city and bring interest into that city and into those galleries. And I think that's fair enough, but that question of recreation and those big public spectacles, even the ones that people don't know are just big public spectacles like the Giants or River of Light are still just repetitions. I mean, it's it's definitely like a conversation for another day, but the (laughs) differentiation between the culture industry and art, I think is the, is the, the big thing here. Um, but like I say, <laughs> let's not get into that now. 